You're listening to the Tennis.com Podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Well, I want to welcome back Pete Bodo and Richard Pagliaro to the podcast. I'm Ed McGrogan here. Um, you've heard a lot about from me and Steve during the Australian Open, but I wanted to get these two gentlemen in uh, for their takes on the event since they were also watching it as well. Right along the site, you saw all their stuff. Uh, when I came back to the office today and uh, saw these two, the first name that came up was Andy Murray. Um, and just talking about what happened to him and everything. And, and a name that surfaced in the discussion uh, in regards to Murray was Ilya Nastasi and how what it's sort of how his style of play in a way reminded us of Murray. And Pete, I wouldn't mind having you sort of explain about Nastasi a little bit of his history because the people that may have heard of him really only know him as sort of this kind of crazy character who just is a great tennis player, but also just kind of a little bit of a nut on court. But how do you put, how do you correlate those two as to what happened? Well, he was more of a flake and the Murray connection really is that Nastasi was a remarkably negative person in many ways on the court. He got, you know, he he got scared basically, and that's a little bit different from Murray's case because I don't think Murray is, you know, quite as nervous as Nastasi was. He's not as neurotic as Nastasi was, but he is kind of pessimistic. And you know, we forget we've had you know Rafael Nadal and, and Roger Federer calling the shots and, and these majors, and even guys like Andy Roddick, who's who you know who's a really good competitor. These guys these guys can all compete. There has not been a lot of this kind of, you know. Not so much choking because everybody chokes a little bit here and there, but you know there are these issues of you know a guy's basic attitude, and I think this negativity is an important thing to keep in mind. There have been players throughout the ages, you know, who have been very, very negative. Yeah. John re- McEnroe, obviously, yeah. Yes. Now McEnroe, the big difference with McEnroe is, of course, he turned it into a positive. So I think we have to really look at Murray as one of those guys. You can't just say, "Gee, this guy really needs to like you know he needs a new coach. He needs this. He needs, he needs that." Because this, there's a personality issue here. The guy is very negative, and I think that's going to show through in his in, in his in, in his match. Yeah, that, I, you're right. There ha, it has been uh, a tennis where that type of that type of attitude has prevailed in some cases. In some players, it gets them. It doesn't lead to anything. But in some players, some people embrace it. Really, I guess the question is really, do you think Murray is kind of capable of that uh, in terms of whether you think he's mental? I think the issue when it comes to that is, is he mentally strong enough to turn that into a positive spin? I think he is. I, I, I think getting back to Pete's point, you look back, remember when Del Potro just got destroyed by Federer at, at the Australian Open a few years back, and everyone's like, geez, this guy just doesn't compete. And he took that match and it really sort of served as a launching pad for him. And he came back, played him hard at the French, and then beat him in New York to win the U.S. Open. Now, he's a totally different style of player than Murray, but I do think winning or at least confronting the loss, he could sort of turn that around. But I don't think it's a game issue. I think it's more of a mental, psychological issue. But if he does get over the hump, I I think that's going to calm him a little. He's just so dour and just that the whole thing with the racket, punching his leg, it's like, dude, just focus on the match, you know, Mm -hmm. just play, you know. And I think he lets these little sort of annoyances seep sort of bleed into the rest of his his game now i remember we're talking about sort of maybe explosive temperamental players i what i remember from Djokovic when he broke out in oa was he was kind of one of he was more of a, a fiery sort of emotional player i know he has his instance but he seems to have kind of sort of gone taken a, a more narrow view of things and kind of just kept his tennis in check and really and really learned to play just his the style of play that we know he's capable of 
Um, as for Djokovic, what he's really what, matured as a competitor. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a, that that's a big step to take, and you got to give him credit. The one thing people forget about this final, I think, is you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, here we are talking about what Murray should do different, what he could have done, what was wrong, what he, what what he needs. But you know what, the way Djokovic was playing, I don't think anybody beats that guy. I don't, I'm not sure Pete Sampras beats Djokovic <laughs> the way he was playing at at this Australian Open. So you know, we got to keep that in context. I think Murray kind of picked up on that too. You know, pretty early in the match, he saw what Djokovic. Djokovic was bringing, and that probably really accelerated his his kind of downhill thing. But look, never forget, tennis is a game of personality, and and the personality is always going to shape things. Doesn't mean character in the usual sense. Doesn't mean you know Murray's a loser because you know he he gets nervous or because he you know he gets frustrated. You know, it's it, it's game character, not human character. But you know, this this stuff all shines through on a tennis court. We see it both on the men's and the women's side. Yeah, let's uh let's look back at something I was just thinking about. We, uh, players we haven't talked about in the last week because they're pretty much all gone by week one and that's pretty much all the american players uh, men and women really there's we had venus williams was a retirement um in the fourth round i believe was it fourth round against pekovic um we're getting some nods here yeah so and then earlier than that we had query going out in round one isner going down to chillich in the third round nine seven in the fifth uh, looked really gutted after that loss. Query was kind of a, a strange, you know, another really disappointing effort. And then there's Roddick, who was blasted off the court by Vavrinka. Uh, just maybe pick a name out of those guys. What, what do you, what do you, what do you see from maybe one of them going forward in the year um, after a start of this? Because all of them, I think, you have to consider disappointing Australian Opens, though some of them were to a lesser degree than the others. Uh, maybe. You know, maybe Roddick we could start off with. What do you think of him? Yeah, I just thought you could almost see that coming in the Hase match where he sort of was content to just try to grind and try to coax the error. And I still think he's got to get back. Maybe just put toss a DVD in of how he played in Miami. He's got to assert himself more because he doesn't, he doesn't make use of the serve. And I thought a key... Getting back to the men's final, a key comment from Djokovic after the match, he said, I don't think I served great. I think I was really good with the first ball after the serve. And that's where Roddick, I think, gets into trouble because he will serve really well, but it's the first ball after that he doesn't do enough with. Yeah, that's a good point. And and that's to me where he's – I'm not saying that's going to totally transform him, but if he could just address that component, I think it would really it would really help him. He does him seem to retreat on. just like yeah, reflexively, right? Exactly. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what about guys like um, – I like what Isner did. I, you know, I mean, I, I don't think Isner had a bad tournament at all. I mean, I, there's, there's no shame in losing to, to Chilich, you know, set, you know, nine, seven and fifth, whatever it was in, in that case. And I think it was what, third round, I think. Third so, round, yeah. you know, and, and Chilich is, I'm, I'm sure Chilich was seated higher, right? Probably so, would have gave, yeah, he was seated higher. And, and the winner of Chilich played in a doll after. And I, I think Isner and a doll, when they're both a healthy on a court like that, you never, I mean, that's like, that's a competitive match, I think. Well, Isner and anybody on a court like yeah, that, because, you right. know, once, you know, with, with Isner, if you're going five sets and, you know, you know, you're in pretty good shape with this. You're in better shape at the U.S. Open, where it ends in a tiebreaker. But you know, I mean, as long as he can, as long as he can take, we you could see by those scores that he he took care of his serve. You know, 
these things that were, you know, there's, there's a break here, a break there, you lose a tiebreaker. And that's what Isner needs to do. Look, I mean, a guy has limitations. He's, you know, he's, he's awful big, hard for him to move around. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to be Fernando Verdasco. He's not going to be some of these guys in Davidenko engaging in long baseline rallies. He's going to basically hit the serve and go for the winner, or he's going to try to nail the returns and, and get that break. So, I mean, I, th- I think he had a good tournament query. Well, he was gone before he even got there. So there's really not much to say there. Yeah. By the way, he did have issues. Uh, I talked to Jim Courier while he was down there in, in Australia, and Sam apparently had some issues with his string, with his equipment. He was, I think, changing strings, and he just never really felt right about the switch. So we'll, we'll see what what that amounts to. Hmm. To put a positive spin on it, at least you saw the Bryan brothers, you know, win their fifth Australian Open, win their 10th major, close in on the Woodies. And the interesting thing with them is the first round match against Lipsky, that was their toughest match. They went three sets in that one and then sort of progressively got better. So Did you guys see when Pays and Bufati almost took a swing at Felicia yeah, Lopez? Yeah, and, that and, was uh, – Again? Oh no, that was at this tournament, right? Lopez <laughs> that was at this and, tournament. Right? Yeah, there was, uh, there was Lopez and who? Who's Lopez? Lopez and Monaco. Juan Monaco. The Adonis's. Yeah. I love that right. press conference. Did you see how Monaco like wanted to have nothing to do? Yeah, with it? like the press conference. He's just sitting there, yeah. like like twiddling his thumbs, <laughs> and he said, "I'm thinking, yeah, what is he? He just wants to go out and maybe punch out pace or something. He doesn't want to sit here talking to a bunch of journalists about they said this and we said that. You know, it's kind I of always funny. wonder with Pays those post match <laughs> moments in the locker room, like if it ever gets, you know, if it ever spills over in there, because he definitely knows how to stick the needle and you like the you like the speaking of courier talking to people you you like his his stick at the end of all the matches is that a nice the post-match interviews basically is that add a lot to the proceedings you think that there there was a lot of talk about that i felt this australia more than any other they always had a little sue barker of him in there at the end but yeah, Jim has carved out that niche kind of pretty well, and I think I think he's I think he's good. I mean, he's relaxed doing it. Sometimes, you know, in a way, maybe it goes on a little bit long. Sometimes, I think, uh, but you know, I think the fans love it. There's no question about that. The TV audience loves it because they're not going to get these guys until you know until the press conference and I'll get a snippet from the press conference. And I think anything anything that you can bring these people to the public is is, is really really a good thing. And I think Jim Jim I think came up with some great little offbeat things like when he like when he had. Um, uh, somebody identify everybody in his box. Who was that? Um, oh, Murray. Murray. Murray identify yeah, everybody Murray. who was in his sure. box. Or he comes up with these off the wall things, and you know that all makes him. You know they called it the happy slam, and they tried to make a big deal out of right. that. I'm not sure how happy Andy Murray is today, yeah. but uh, but you know that it's all part of this shtick down there, and I think it works great. Let's let's finish up with with uh, some talk on the women. I get at primarily Kim Clijsters because uh, she wins first slam aside from flushing Meadows down here. Uh, do, at this point, do we put her right now on the level of Serena Williams when she you – know, Serena's not come back still for a couple more months, but with her performance here, she also, besides the Open, had the Tour Championships and really really has been kind of a clear number one, I feel, in the absence of Serena. But is she truly the top player in the world when you have to consider – Serena I think if Serena's healthy, Serena's the best player in the world because you don't see Serena when she's on have those lapses where two or three games she'll throw in an air. And Serena's just so much more convincing a closer with the serve, although Kleister's, you got to give her credit, she did close when she had to. Um, I mean, she's a hell of a player of everyone healthy. you got to say she's the best, but a healthy Serena to me is... It's no just contest. a level above. Well, yeah. She can't be a clear number one either, right? I mean, I think I think you're not giving Wozniak enough credit there. I mean, Carolyn Wozniak is 
de facto, you know, by, right. you know, is, is a de facto prima facie number one. And that's, you know, that's something, you know, now that's a different issue from the best player. Maybe, maybe you, you're sort of using that colloquially, but I think, and let's, let's remember, you know, Wozniacki was almost in the final, you know, I mean, you know, granted almost isn't good enough, but, you know, I mean, I think she had a very good tournament given the pressure she was undercoming. If you just got to look at what Yelena Yankovic did when she came into the Australian Open with the number one ranking, you know, uh, for the previous year, you know, a chance to confirm that, you know, with, with a Grand Slam title. I think Wozniak had a very good tournament. I, I, I really like her game. A lot of people, you know, look, you don't have to play interesting tennis. All you have to do is win. And I think, and, and I really like her game. I think she's going to do well. Kleisters, the thing with Kleisters is, you know, I don't know how much she's going to play. And that's a little bit tough. You know, I mean, uh, you know, she wins the Australian, breaks that sort of hex, looks like she's going to come on strong, but you don't know if she cares enough just in terms of her. Per- it's, it's up to her. It's fine with me. But you got to wonder, you know, she's not going to be out there battling it out of tournament after tournament. The way I look at it with Kleisters is she's already given you the expiration date on her career, like basically saying, this is my last full year after 2012 Olympics. I'm probably going to taper off or stop. So I think in a way that sort of liberates her where she's just like, look, this is my last French Open. It's my last Australian. Now, whether that's true or not, we'll find out. But I think mentally it does sort of liberate her because early in her career she would get tight in those matches and and you don't see that as much now i think there's a maturity there because she knows the finish lines in sight right but it also makes it tougher Trent, i think because because what it will also do is you know she's like feels like she's playing with house money so if she's not really feeling it that day or you know more importantly if some some kid comes in as a ranker type kid or somebody who said i've had enough of this i want i want my piece of the pie wants to go in there or or, or serena you're looking for for revenge or to reestablish herself or something i think you know that in a way i think it's going to be tough for classes because it's like what am i doing out here i'm you know it's I'm like a built-in, another year built-in all... sort of buffer that exactly yeah. it could go either way that that right. i think but you know let's face it i mean I, i've been very tough on clusters for a long time and uh you know she she did it this time i mean, coming back you know winning that match coming back the way she did against now i think that was that was a very very good effort it's just too bad that she's not now saying i wish she were saying you know what this winner really makes me want to play, and I'm going to go. So I'm going to see how long I can I, I can string this out instead of saying, "Well, yeah, well, I'll be done by the by the Olympics." I mean, plus, I want to have another baby. But yeah. to me, that's the quandary of women's tennis right now. Is you see the people who are winning or getting near the top, it's always like, "Hello, I must be going." You know, I love winning, but I, you know, I'm not really committed to fully playing the whole year. So I think that getting back to your Wozniacki point, that's the cool thing about Wozniacki. If you love tennis, she loves to play. She's there for all the tour events, the lower level events. You can count on her consistently competing whereas the elite players they're basically serena Kleister's even had him before she left they're about the majors and that's where it begins and ends on some level so if you're the wta sure it's a great story she's super mom she's winning but you really aren't going to see her at every so you're not going to see her playing like poland like Wozniacki. it kind of hurts know? the game richard i think you know yeah. you know you, yeah. you really don't want it. it's a little like tom brady saying all right yeah i'm gonna right. play, i'll play two games right. well we're, we, you know okay we're four and one now so i'm gonna sit out the next three right. games if we get to the playoffs i'll play that really really it's a it's it's kills the game it's a terrible thing we're almost like back in the amateur era where where people are showing up when they want right. playing Great. You know, look, it's their lives. You know, if that's what they want to do, it's fine. But it does not help the game. It does not help drive the storylines and the rivalries and all these other things. So it's it's really kind of unfortunate. And, and it, all, it really does appear to be getting worse rather than better. And yep. it also leads back to those conversations. Like, who's the true number one? Well, based on the ranking, she is the true number one, whether or not she has a major, because they're all playing by the same ranking rules. Oh, that's right. Good stuff. Well, thanks for your takes today on that. And uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast uh, when we see what else happens in the tennis world as it turns 
yet again. Thanks Unless for we listening. get snowed in per- permanently. Hmm. We're, we're, we living, get... we're living in a tough world here. Unless we get snowed in permanently. That's always a caveat. Pete Bodo, Richard Pegaro, Ed McGrogan. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.